Dems gave a helping hand, so now we're back in Tory land. I don't know how I'm going to stand another ten years of that lot, but that, it seems, is what we've got in store. It's called democracy. It's not all it's cracked up to be. It's like an endless game of cricket. Each team takes turns at the wicket. While we watch and cheer and boo, and that, I fear, is all we do. One team's in, the other's out, then it's turn and turn about. This lot's out, that lot comes in. Different faces, same old spin, same old systems, same old lies, same old drive to privatise. Democracy, a funny game, you put a cross against a name. The Chartists and the Suffragettes fought for this privilege, don't forget. So do your duty, make your choice, thank them for giving you a voice. Next thing, they've taken your consent to form a bleeding government. Democracy. It's called democracy. Aren't you happy that you live in a democracy? Cross you innocently appended as consequences unintended. Remember 1997, one brief spring, a glimpse of heaven. We thought, we hoped at least to see a fairer run society. But in the end, what did we get? A hollow system run on debt? A system where the market rules, where wealth buys peerages and schools, where everything is done to groomers to behave like good consumers? A culture of celebrity. Now we're all on CCTV. Dodgy arms deals, well, why not? Asylum seekers, let them rot. Lock them up for their own good. Camsfield, Harmonsworth, Yarlswood. Tough on crime and immigration. Anti-terrorist legislation used to criminalise dissent. None of that is what I meant. Tuition fees, asbos galore. The penalty for being poor. And worst of all, war after war. That isn't what I voted for. Democracy. God bless democracy. Now it's time to sing the praises of democracy. Remember Blair's peroration? Education, education, education. Children tested, children stressed, endless targets, sats obsessed, city gamblers must reward them, post offices can't afford them, hail the city's reckless greed, bonuses are guaranteed to soar into the stratosphere, the rich grow richer every year, hedge fund speculators loaded, civil liberties eroded, torture, MI5 complicit, not a pretty picture is it? The system's riding on a bubble Now the whole shebang's in trouble It must end, it does in tears After thirteen wasted years Ends in one almighty crash So give the bankers bags of cash Their greed it was that helped to rob A million workers of their jobs But still the system, so it goes Must be maintained as wider grows The gulf between the rich and poor Still they're wasting lives on war That isn't what I voted for Democracy, it's called democracy Aren't you happy that you live in a democracy? And that was Talking Democracy Blues by Leon Rosselson, which you can find on the album The World Turned Upside Down, Rossell Songs, 1990-2010. to 2010. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy and our revolution, the movement that he helped inspire. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, pack, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter. Updated Twitter handle, BernieUS2020. And you can find out more about Bernie2016 at Bernie-2016.com, where you can find back episodes and some links to other resources. But let's get started in this episode of Bernie 2016. First up is from Jill Stein at jill2016.com. 
And this is titled, Election Integrity Depends on You. The Steinbaracka Green Party campaign is launching an effort to ensure the integrity of our elections. We are raising money to demand recounts in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, three states where there is a significant need to verify machine-counted vote totals. To give you a sense of the problem, the voting machines used in Wisconsin were banned in California after they were shown to be highly vulnerable to hacking and malicious programming due to lacking security features. Quote, after a divisive and painful presidential race in which foreign agents hacked into party databases, private email servers, and voter databases in certain states, many Americans are wondering if our election results are reliable. That's why the unexpected results of the election and reported anomalies need to be investigated before the 2016 presidential election is certified. We deserve elections we can trust. That is a quote from Dr. Jill Stein. This is about more than the results of this one election. This is about protecting our democracy and ensuring that we, the people, can have confidence in reported results. This effort to ensure election integrity is in your hands. In order to make this happen, we need to raise over $2 million by this Friday, and this Friday being the Friday that's just passed, which is yesterday as I record this. In true grassroots fashion, we're turning to you, the people, and not big money corporate donors to make this happen. We hope to do recounts in all three states. If we only raise sufficient money for two, we will demand recounts in two states. If we only raise enough money for one, we will demand a recount in one state. If we do not raise enough money for any recount, which is highly unlikely, we pledge to use the money for election integrity efforts and to promote systemic voting system reform. Here are the filing fees and deadlines for each state. Wisconsin, $1.1 million. By November 25, Pennsylvania, 5.5 million, million by November 28, and Michigan, 0.6 million by November 30. Those are the filing fees alone. The costs associated with recounts are a function of state law. Attorneys' fees are likely to be another 2 to 3 million. Then there are the costs of the statewide recount observers in all three states. The total cost is likely to be 6 to 7 million. So Jill Stein launched this early this week on Monday or Tuesday of Thanksgiving week in the United States, and she quickly met her initial goal, and let's see if, so as I am recording this now, Jill Stein has raised for the recounts. $5,773,260.45. $5 of which came from me. And I think this recount effort is a fantastic effort. I think it will change nothing about the outcome of the election, and I have absolutely no problem with that whatsoever. Why I think it's a fantastic effort is we should have faith that our systems that are in place for counting election votes are accurate and valid. And the only way to do that is to test them, is to perform recounts, is to say, hey, is is what we reported on election day accurate and valid representation of how people voted in this election? The only way to do that is to actually count the votes. So I think this effort is going to either confirm, and I think that's the likeliest outcome, that by and large, our processes and counting methods and equipment are fair and accurate, or find some anomalies, and I suspect there may be some minor anomalies in the election counting system. Uh, All systems are fallible, both the human component and the uh, digital component are potentially fallible. And so I think that this may uncover a very limited amount of that. I don't know, you know, if this will, this will likely sway some votes or the, the vote totals one way or the other. I don't think in any case it will sway the vote totals enough that Hillary Clinton would pick up the states. 
or pick up a state. And I think it's astronomically impossible. I shouldn't say impossible. It's, it's astronomically unlikely that Hillary Clinton could pick up all three states or enough uh, delegates to actually turn the election. I think that a huge reason why Jill Stein has been able to raise five point, almost five point eight million at this point. Um, I think a huge reason for that is that many, many people hope that some more significant anomalies and enough anomalies to sway the election will be found. But that I don't believe is the goal of this recount, nor do I believe it is anything remotely likely as far as the outcome. A lot of questions have come up since Jill Stein started this fundraiser and has raised a phenomenal amount, more money than Jill Stein raised in her presidential campaign by far in just four days of fundraising for this effort. Um, There's certainly been a lot of questions and more recently in the last 24 hours, a lot of attacks on Jill Stein, which she got during the campaign as well. During her campaign, she got most of her attacks from the left wing, from the liberal Democrats that thought she was spoiling the uh, election for Clinton, which is not the case. Uh, But now a lot of those attacks a large number, probably most of those attacks are coming from the right. Not that there are still not detractors from the Clinton camp. Many of them are couching their support for this effort in uh, hardly contained anger that Jill Stein ran for president in the first place and, and quote unquote siphoned votes from Hillary Clinton. But as a Jill Stein voter, and I've said it before, uh, there was no way in hell I was going to vote for Hillary Clinton based on her policy history. And so if Jill Stein was not in the race, I would have written in somebody else or I would have stayed home. And I think that is the vast majority of the Stein voters would not have held their nose and cast a vote for Hillary Clinton or for Donald Trump. So in response to a lot of these questions that have come up, Jill Stein and the Greens have posted some responses. This is also on Jill2016.com. And this is hashtag recount 2016 frequently asked questions. Who initiated the recount? The Stein-Baraka campaign initiated the recount and has led the subsequent fundraising and logistics management. Though Jill Stein was a Green Party presidential candidate, the party did not endorse the recount initiative. Where are you recounting votes? Because of you, recounts in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania are funded. Next up is Michigan. Raising money to pay for the first two recounts so quickly is a miraculous feat and a tribute to the power of grassroots organizing. Now that we have completed funding Wisconsin's recount, where we have already filed Friday, November 25th, and Pennsylvania's recount due Monday, November 28th, we will focus on raising funds for Michigan's recount. Why are you really doing this? Despite the many rumors swirling on the internet, the Stein-Baraka campaign genuinely believes in the power of grassroots democracy. Independently funded candidates like Jill Stein cannot stand a chance if our electoral system is rigged in favor of establishment corporate-funded candidates. The evidence so far shows it is easy to hack many voting machines being used in elections. Aside from conducting a recount, we advocate ranked choice voting and federal campaign financing. Just a few solutions put forth by the Green Party in its six-point plan for grassroots democracy. 
The Green Party platform, which calls for publicly owned open source voting equipment and deploy it across the nation to ensure high national standards, performance, transparency, and accountability, use verifiable paper ballots, and institute mandatory automatic random precinct recounts to ensure a high level of accuracy in election results. So it is a plank in the Green Party platform to validate, to test, to ensure accuracy in election results. So this effort is in accordance with those Green Party values. How will this help the country? Healing the country is exactly what I'm going for. We cannot heal if we do not know where we're broken. The Steinbaracka campaign aims to kickstart a national conversation around the integrity of our electoral systems and our democracy. Isn't an, isn't an audit more thorough than a recount? Each state's laws dictate how we are able to investigate the integrity of the voting system. We will use every mechanism available to us in each state. Plus, this kind of effort has positive consequences. A national nonpartisan watchdog group, Citizens for Election Integrity Minnesota, formed after Green Party 2004 presidential candidate David Cobb, now the Stein Baraka campaign manager, demanded a recount in Ohio that sent one election official to jail and prompted California to ditch hackable DRE voting machines. Why does it cost so much? The cost is a function of state laws. A portion of the money raised goes towards state filing fees, while the bulk goes towards legal fees and the cost of recount observers in each state. And there is a breakdown of those costs, just the cost of the filing fees, which I mentioned previously. Can a wealthy person donate the whole amount you need? Frankly, we're proud of our grassroots and our small dollar donors. We are grateful to have received about 110,000 contributions at an average amount of $45. The Federal Election Commission's rules on campaign contributions still apply here. The good news? If you had donated the maximum amount of 2700 as an individual contributor, by November 8, you are now permitted to donate up to 2700 to fund this recount initiative. Why don't you use a crowdfunding site that lets people get their money back? As a campaign, we're beholden to the rules of the Federal Election Commission. It does not allow campaigns to use crowdsourced funds. How will you use surplus funds? If we raise more than what's needed, the surplus will also go towards election integrity efforts and to promote voting system reform. Why isn't the campaign doing a recount in any other state besides Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin? Election integrity experts have independently identified Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin as states where, quote, statistical anomalies raise concerns. We would do recounts in other states, but many filing deadlines have already passed. Recounts in states where deadlines have not passed would be considered if funds are available. Conducting research on state deadlines and requirements for filing is difficult work. That's why we'd appreciate your support in finding accurate data. You can start at the Citizens for Election Integrity, Minnesota. Why are you only doing recounts in states that Clinton lost and Trump won? As mentioned previously, election integrity experts have independently identified these states where statistical anomalies raise concerns. Please note, when we started our recount effort, the results in Michigan had not yet been certified, so those electoral college votes had not yet been allocated to any candidate. Conducting research on state deadlines, again, that repeats the answer, to the previous question. Uh, can you recount votes in Nevada, Oklahoma, or South Dakota? The Steinbaracka campaign was not on the ballot in those states, so it cannot file paperwork to recount votes. Who is recounting votes and who is in charge of that? 
County election officials and their staff recount the ballots. We are recruiting volunteers to observe the recount of the ballots. You can sign up to volunteer through links. There's links provided for Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. The recount process will be overseen by independent recount observers. We're hiring experienced lawyers to ensure the legality of our operations, and our staff is working around the clock to make sure we finish the recount before each state's deadline. If you are granted a recount, does it only recount your votes or votes for all candidates on the ballot for each state? The purpose of a recount is to ensure accurate vote counts for all candidates in the race the recount is being requested for. In this case, all candidates for president. Please include provisional ballots and cross-check voter purge in your recount efforts. The Steinbaracka campaign will use as many mechanisms available to us in each state to ensure the integrity of the vote results. We care about grassroots democracy. That includes counting all ballots and working against voter suppression tactics like interstate cross-check. And there are some links to recent statements on interstate cross-check campaigns coordinating with super PACs, rigged elections, and international election observers. So that was the uh, Q&A, or frequently asked questions, on Jill Stein's site regarding the recounts that she has initiated. And this piece also on the recount effort is from Inc.com, I-N-C.com. This is by Minda Zetlin and is titled, Wisconsin will recount votes after Green Party's Jill Stein files petition. Maybe you hated this past election season, growing tired of the vitriol, accusations, and paltry discussion of the issue. Or maybe you loved every dramatic moment with its stranger-than-fiction plot twists. Either way, it's not quite over yet. Wisconsin will recount its votes after Green Party candidate Jill Stein filed a petition and raised millions to fund the effort. Ever since Donald Trump won narrow victories in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan on Election Day, data scientists, activists, and election lawyers have been urging Hillary Clinton to demand a recount in these three very divided states. The Clinton campaign hasn't taken up this cause, but there's going to be a recount anyway. Stein has officially petitioned Wisconsin to hold a recount, and the state's election commission administrator, Michael Haas, has issued a statement saying that the state plans to comply. Quote, We have assembled an internal team to direct the recount. We have been in close consultation with our county clerk partners and have arranged for legal representation by the Wisconsin Department of Justice, Haas added in the statement. He added that the recount would likely begin late next week after the Stein campaign pays the recount fee, quote, which we are still calculating. The last statewide recount for a 2011 Supreme Court election cost more than $520,000, he explained, with nearly twice as many votes cast in this presidential election as in that Supreme Court one. He anticipates the recount fee this time will be substantially higher. Stein has the money. Her website initially asked supporters to meet a contribution goal of $2.5 million to fund the recount, then upped that sum when the first goal was quickly surpassed. As of this writing, she's asking for a total of $7 million and has received just under $6 million so far. The additional money should cover filing fees, attorneys, and recount observers, as well as the recount fee itself. It is by far the most money a third party has ever raised. Stein filed her position in Wisconsin about 90 minutes ahead of the state's deadline for doing so. Wisconsin now has until December 13 to complete the recount. The deadlines for filing petitions in Pennsylvania and Michigan are next week. Is a recount likely to make a difference? Not very. Very. 
Electronic voting machines seem to be raising the most suspicions, but in some cases, for example, in Pennsylvania, there is no paper record against which the machine's results can be checked. So a recount would would likely consist of simply rescanning the machines. Michigan, on the other hand, does have a paper record of nearly all its votes. In any case, Stein says she's not looking to help one party or the other, but merely to ensure that votes are properly counted because Americans came out of this election, quote, not happy campers. Winning a Wisconsin recount would not be enough to give Clinton a majority in the Electoral College. For that to happen, she would have to win recounts in all three states and then prevail against Trump's inevitable court challenge. Experts agree it's highly unlikely all of that will happen. Then again, these are the same experts who confidently predicted that Trump couldn't win. And next up, let's switch gears to a different topic. And this is from medium.com. And this piece is by Bernie Sanders. It's called Let's Rebuild Our Infrastructure, Not Provide Tax Breaks to Big Corporations and Wall Streets. No, not Wall Streets. Wall Street. Our infrastructure is collapsing and the American people know it. Speaking of collapsing infrastructure, in New Jersey last week or the week before, a bridge collapsed as a train was passing over it. It wasn't, fortunately, was not a passenger train. I did not hear about anybody who was harmed in that event, and I hope no one was, Uh, but a train, a a bridge did collapse as a train was crossing a, a large stream or small river here in New Jersey last week. I'll start again. Our infrastructure is collapsing and the American people know it. Every day they drive on roads with unforgiving potholes and over bridges that are in disrepair. They wait in traffic jams and ride in overcrowded subways. They see airports bursting at the seams. They see the need for a modern rail system. They worry that a local levee or dam could fail in a storm. During the presidential campaign, Donald Trump correctly talked about rebuilding our country's infrastructure, but the plan he offered is a scam that gives massive tax breaks to large companies and billionaires on Wall Street who are already doing phenomenally well. Trump would allow corporations that have stashed their profits overseas to pay just a fraction of what the companies owe in federal taxes. And then he would allow the companies to invest in infrastructure projects in exchange for even more tax breaks. Trump's plan is corporate welfare coming and going. In 2015, I introduced the Rebuild America Act to invest $1 trillion over five years to modernize the physical infrastructure that our economy depends on. In January, I will reintroduce that legislation to directly invest in our roads, bridges, water systems, rail, airports, levees, and dams. Importantly, at a time when we need to reverse the 40-year decline of the American middle class, this legislation would create and maintain at least 13 million good-paying jobs while making our country more productive, efficient, and safe. Unlike Trump's plan, which creates new tax loopholes and is a corporate giveaway, my Rebuild America Act would be paid for by eliminating tax loopholes that allow hugely profitable multinational corporations to stash their profits in offshore tax havens around the world. So Trump does have a plan to rebuild our infrastructure, but it depends on borrowing the money from wealthy individuals and major corporations. Something that we already do is we borrow money to build and rebuild and work on our infrastructure. And that in itself isn't such a bad thing necessarily. Uh, That rebuilt infrastructure will provide big benefits to all citizens going forward 
and even businesses going forward, the more efficient our transportation system is, the easier it is for them to move goods, for people to take advantage of their services, and those businesses prosper. But they shouldn't prosper on they shouldn't prosper on both ends. They shouldn't benefit from both sides of the equation. They shouldn't benefit by investing or loaning the government that money and then benefit further by the outcome of those infrastructure improvements. It's a bad deal for the taxpayers or it's a it's a it's a giveaway. It's not a giveaway. It's a interest in paying interest on borrowing money from these wealthy individuals and groups we are losing a chunk of our tax dollars that should be going towards something more productive than paying interest a better plan is for instead of the government to borrow that money is for the government to raise taxes on those individuals and use that money then to rebuild our infrastructure, which then, which then will benefit those individuals in their other investments and benefit those corporations. And those will all come out ahead of the game, even while paying a greater tax share uh, to the, the federal government. The share that corporations pay to the federal government is at its lowest level in decades, and that could help rectify the situation where we can't afford to rebuild our infrastructure without borrowing huge sums of money from those entities. There's a great podcast called Democracy at Work. And hopefully I got that right. Um, and the uh, author or the person behind that podcast is a Dr. Wolf with two Fs from New York. Um, and it's actually a really, really great podcast covering a lot of issues with economics and our workplace and democracy or the lack thereof in our workplace. And the most recent episode of that podcast spoke precisely to this issue of loaning or or, or of borrowing the money to rebuild our infrastructure and then paying back the interest on that borrowed money, which is taking away money that should be used for, for other better things, in my opinion. All right, from the next piece is from rollingstone.com. It is called Why Anti-Trump Protests Matter and is by Sarah Jaffe. Since election night, U.S. cities and towns have rung with protest. Hundreds of thousands of people from New York City to Los Angeles, from Columbia, South Carolina to Salt Lake City, Utah, took to the streets en masse to protest the election of a man who promised, among other things, to force Muslims to register and to repeal a health care bill that helps some 20 million people get health insurance, and who has been accused of sexual assault by at least 13 women. Hand-scrawled signs declared, not my president, no to bigotry, Trump puts my life in danger, and protests are patriotic. High school students have walked out of class in protests across the country, including in Montgomery County, Maryland, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Phoenix, Arizona, and Omaha, Nebraska. Teresa Diaz was one of those protesters marching in New York on Sunday, November 13th in a, quote, here-to-stay rally against Trump's proposed deportations. Quote, as an immigrant mother of two beautiful U.S. citizen daughters, I woke up to my worst nightmare on Wednesday morning. Diaz, a member of community organization Make the Road New Jersey, 
told Rolling Stone. But I'm marching today to show that I'm not afraid. The speed with which these protests came together and the vehemence of their reaction far outpaced the growth of the Tea Party movement in the wake of the election of Barack Obama in 2008. But there has still been a reaction from some quarters that the protests are behaving like, quote, sore losers. Such a sentiment is a byproduct of the fact that Americans tend to think that the only way one can participate in politics, the only possible way to take political action, is to vote. And yet in recent years, and particularly since the 2008 financial crisis, Americans have been rediscovering the power of protest. They have embraced, in increasing numbers, disruption as a tactic for making their voices heard. As they have lost faith in the elites who run the world— as evidenced by the still-dropping voter turnout numbers that saw Donald Trump win the Electoral College with fewer votes than Mitt Romney got in losing the election in 2012. More and more of them have turned to civil disobedience to attempt to make change. As one popular sign from the anti-Trump protest read, Not usually a sign guy, but geez... The anti-Trump protesters have offered up many different reasons for joining the rallies, vigils, marches, and walkouts. Some like Diaz and Zulema Dominguez, a member of Make the Road New Jersey, Make the Road New York, and a recipient of Obama's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals policy, would directly be affected by Trump's proposals. Quote, Trump's pledge to revoke DACA in his first 100 days as president would affect me because I would lose my work permit and be forced to live in fear of being separated from my family. I would be afraid to leave my home and it would be hard for me to continue with my education given that I could no longer apply for scholarships that require a social security number. Others decided to show up to offer solidarity to those frightened of what a Trump presidency might mean. Amy Vanderberg, a University of Southern California student, told the LA Times, quote, There are a lot of marginalized people in this country who are scared, are hurting. If I can protest as a white person to say, I see you, I'm with you, and I love you, that's what I'm going to do. The protests offer people like Vandenberg a way to show support and people like Dominguez a place to find new allies. They create connections in a public space at a time when more and more people are isolated. For the high school students and undocumented immigrants in particular, who were prohibited from taking part in this or any election, despite being deeply affected by its results, these protests have created a space for them to take part in the democratic process, to have their voices and their objections heard. In particular, civil disobedience allows protesters to, quote, generalize the crisis, as Tabita Chow of Chicago's People's Lobby told me in 2015 as I was reporting for my book, Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. As people around the country continue to struggle with the wake of the financial crisis and the austerity budgets imposed by state and local politicians, the powerful rarely feel the pain they're inflicting. Quote, the politicians and these rich people who are funding them, they're imposing this crisis on a vast majority of people. But as far as they're concerned, there is no crisis. It's not part of their life, Chow said. He also noted that taking part in protests can have a transformative effect on the people who get involved. Quote, it expands your sense of freedom about what you're willing to do and what you're capable of doing. It has a really liberating effect on people. And this piece does continue. If you want to read the rest of it, go check out rollingstone.com and look for why anti-Trump protests matter by Sarah Jaffe. And this next piece is from the New York Times. It is called When Work Loses Its Dignity and is written by Sherrod Brown. Sherrod Brown is a Democratic senator from Ohio, and he is the author of Quote, myths of free trade, why American trade policy has failed. 
Start with this. When you call us the Rust Belt, you demean our work and diminish who we are. To create wealth in America, we make it, we grow it, or we mine it. In the industrial Midwest, we do all three. Ohio has the largest manufacturing workforce in the country, aside from California and Texas. And we make things with dignity. Many years ago, as a state representative, I spent countless hours at United Steelworkers Local 169 in Mansfield, a small industrial city north of Columbus. I would listen to workers who stopped in at the hall before or after their shifts. I learned how they made steel and how they built cars. I learned that strikes are always an act of back-against-the-wall desperation because workers never make up for the wages lost, no matter how good the new contract is or how briefly they are on the picket line. They worked hard, most gladly accepted six-day work weeks because of the overtime pay. Most of these workers, especially those lucky enough to carry a union card, had a shot at upward mobility. They owned modest houses. They could buy new cars every four or five years, and they could send their children to the local Ohio State campus or to North Central Technical College. Few of these workers, white or black, expected to have the opportunities I had as a doctor's kid. But they understood intuitively that their daughter at Johnny Appleseed Junior High could have more than they did. Their goal, to achieve the American dream and send their children up the economic ladder, was more difficult for them to reach than it was for my parents. More things could go wrong for them, a layoff, a strike, a work injury, an illness in the family each coming with more devastating consequences than those life deals out to more affluent white families. I learned about the role circumstance played in success, where you were born, how much education and income your parents had, what neighborhood you lived in, what school you attended. At the Union Hall, we often discussed books, articles, and news about strikes and heroes of the labor movement. They were novels like Wallace Stenger's Joe Hill and John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath that tell the very real stories of the lives of American workers, stories that too many in Washington have forgotten or ignored for far too long. As the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. taught us, all work has dignity and importance, whether done by a street sweeper, Michelangelo, or Beethoven. People take pride in the things they make, in serving their communities in hospitals or schools, in making their contribution to society with a job well done. But over the past 40 years, as people have worked harder for less pay and fewer benefits, the value of their work has eroded. When we devalue work, we threaten the pride and dignity that come from it. American workers understand then and understand now that you build a society and an economy from the middle class out. Trickle-down economics was discredited decades ago. Workers paid good wages are also good consumers, which means companies can sell more of their products. Executives have always been paid well, but nothing close to the 300 to 1 pay ratio separating chief executives from workers today. Most Americans have always wanted to believe that their children's lives will be better than their own. Ohio workers know they toil harder and are paid less than their parents and have less power to control the hours they work and their share of the wealth they create for their employer. This diverse force feels betrayed by trade and tax policies that create immense affluence at the top and take wealth from workers. Much of Washington, and that now includes Donald J. Trump, doesn't seem to understand this. Ohio families will watch to see if the new president follows the billionaire agenda of the Republican leadership in Washington, which has called for overturning a new rule that increases overtime pay for many workers, an action that would strip thousands of dollars in wages from 130,000 of Ohio's moderate income workers. 
They will measure this president to see if he continues to oppose increasing the minimum wage, which is worth nearly 20% less than in 1980. Workers will expect the president to keep his promise of a trade agenda that puts their jobs above corporate profits, and they will scrutinize whether he will throw in with Washington's moneyed interests at the expense of middle-class and working-class families. If President Trump takes the likely path that almost all Washington Republicans hope, tax cuts for the rich, an easing up on Wall Street, more voter suppression, Ohio workers will feel betrayed again, and they will respond. And from RollCall.com by Eric Garcia. This piece is called Sanders, DeLauro, and Gabbard Celebrate Death of TPP. Politicians don't usually stop supporters from chanting their names, but on Thursday, Senator Bernie Sanders stopped supporters from shouts of Bernie, Bernie at a rally in Washington. He wanted them to know the movement born out of his ultimately unsuccessful campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination was more than just about him. Quote, I appreciate your love and it is mutual, the Vermont Independent said. It is all of us. Sanders was the main speaker at the rally celebrating the death of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Sanders has long opposed. The senator used the rally to explain that after the heavy Democratic losses on Election Day, it's time to change course. Quote, when you lose the White House to the least popular candidate in the history of America, when you lose the Senate, when you lose the House, and when two-thirds of governors of this country are Republicans, it is time for a new direction for the Democratic Party. Sanders, appearing with Democratic reps Rosa DeLauro and Tulsi Gabbard, reiterated his support for Minnesota Rep. Keith Ellison as the next Democratic National Committee chairman and said that the party needed to do a better job reaching working-class voters. Quote, I have not the slightest doubt that millions of people voted for Donald Trump despite their understanding that he is a racist and a sexist, Sanders said, adding that they still voted for him because they thought Trump would challenge the establishment. Quote, well, the truth is, as all of you know, Donald Trump is not going to stand up to the establishment. We are going to stand up to the establishment, he said. So, effectively, but not officially, the TPP is dead. The Donald Trump campaigned against it, while Barack Obama, Obama supported it a great deal, and it had a number of Republican supporters. The Republican leadership in the Senate has pledged not to take that up in the lame duck Congress, the Congress that comes back in before uh, the new president gets sworn in, which was the biggest risk of the TPP passing is that Congress coming back and passing the TPP before the inauguration next year, where policies will shift into a new direction. Um, And we all, all of us who oppose the TPP and, and made our voices heard on that opposition to the TPP deserve the kudos for turning the tide against that trade deal that would have cost us much more than it would have brought us. So we should celebrate that the end of the TPP, and we should be careful not to celebrate too early. There's always an outside chance that the powerful 
will swing a deal in some way to get that vote to happen and a chance it will pass. So while we re- should rejoice that at this point the door seems closed, we should be wary that that door is still there. And we should look forward to the next battle, the next thing, be it Black Lives Matter, be it Standing Rock, be it another crappy trade deal written in the back rooms between corporations and governments that is foisted upon us by our politicians. We should make sure that we are heard on all of our issues. It is the only way, especially with a Republican uh, government in place, the only way that we will be able to put any pressure on the direction of legislation and, and policies coming out of that government is by being vocal, being out there, protesting when necessary, and standing up for what's right. And one of the places that that is going on right now, and I've talked about before, is at Standing Rock in North Dakota, where the Dakota Access Pipeline is under construction and poses threats to sacred land and water supplies for the Native American people living there. And this piece is from SierraClub.org, and it is about Standing Rock. It is by Adam Skolnick, S-K-O-L-N-I-C-K. And it is called Water Cannons, Tear Gas, Rubber Bullets, and Concussion Grenades Unleashed on Activists at Standing Rock. Around 6 p.m. on Sunday, November 20, Elizabeth Hoover, 38, was preparing a wild rice and hominy salad in Grandma's kitchen, one of 10 canteens set up to feed the approximately 3,000 activists based at Standing Rock Camp in North Dakota. They had gathered there to resist the proposed Dakota Access Pipeline, which, if built, would funnel crude oil from nearby tar sands beneath the Missouri River to Illinois, 1,172 miles away. Hoover, a professor of American studies at Brown University, was finishing up her first day at Standing Rock. She and dozens others and a dozen others were cooking dinner when someone ran in and announced that bodies were needed at Backwater Bridge, roughly a quarter mile away. Just a half hour earlier, a small group of activists had attempted to remove a burned out vehicle in an effort to provide access to ambulances as winter took hold. It was 25 degrees and dropping, and the vehicle had been one of a few blocking the road since late October, when activists were forced off the disputed construction site and back to their camp in a crackdown that made international news. When they attempted to remove the vehicle, the group was pushed back by fire hoses, which triggered an angry response from a small knot of activists gathered there. As word spread, their numbers grew. Soon there were almost 500 facing down about 100 sheriff's deputies and a tactical SWAT team, along with their intimidating collection of Humvees, armored personnel carriers, and fire trucks. They were separated from one another by a concrete and barbed wire barricade that the Morton County Sheriff's Department had built on its side of the bridge to block further access to the pipeline site. Hoover stopped on a hilltop above the bridge, where a screen had been set up to stream live drone footage. She saw water cannons deployed, drenching the activists, whose clothes began to freeze. She knew that one of her current students and two alums were in the mix, so she ran towards the front line to make sure they were safe. She had no idea she would be part of a standoff that would last over seven hours. Phil Gilbert, 55, a Lakota Sioux from nearby Cheyenne River, has been camped at Standing Rock since August. He arrived at the scene at around 8.30 p.m. Quote, It was already going strong by then, he said. The conflict went off in waves. 
The police had a continuous line all the way across, and when people would get too close to them on one side, they started using water cannons, and that would inspire people to want to confront them. Then it would calm down, and activists would get too close on the other side. Some of the activists had shields and everything. Conwenny Jacobs, 36, from the Mohawk Nation in Kahnawake, Quebec, was among the activists who used found plywood and scrap metal sheet, scrap metal sheeting to deflect water. She and 10 others formed a wall, though they still got soaked. Occasionally, she would peek around the side of her makeshift shield and watch police as they stopped using water and used pepper spray instead. They were holding mace canisters the size of little fire extinguishers, she said. Those are designed for shorter distances, but the police also deployed tear gas canisters and even fired foaming mace from what an army veteran turned activist described as a mace cannon. A few enraged activists began hurling empty canisters back at police who responded with rubber bullets shot indiscriminately into the crowd. When they shot people with bullets, Jacob said, one of them was laughing. Gilbert was shot in the leg three times. He'd come to the aid of a young man who had fallen and was being sprayed with a water cannon and couldn't get to his feet. Quote, I went over to raise hell so he could get up and get out of there, Gilbert said. My legs went numb, but I didn't fall. I just backed off. It was like that all night. One girl got shot in the face. She had a bloody nose, a bloody mouth. Gilbert, Hoover, and Jacobs all said they saw and heard concussion grenades deployed by law enforcement as well. I saw three grenades lobbed in the air. They went off all around us, Gilbert said. As events unfolded, the Morton County Sheriff released a statement calling the situation a riot instigated by protesters. The department claimed that activists had deliberately lit fires in an attempt to harm officers, which is why they used fire hoses. Quote, they put out a fire that was started to warm people who had been drenched and were freezing, Hoover responded. The only fires set were campfires, Jacob said. That's all that I saw. It was freezing. There was ice on the barbed wire. Police also contend that they used tear gas and rubber bullets to prevent people from crossing the bridge, a contention activists also dispute. Quote, nobody was trying to cross over, said Gwendolyn Cates, a documentary filmmaker who has made several trips to Standing Rock since August and was on the scene most of the night. You can't anyway, there's a barbed wire and concrete barrier. If activists had been crossing the barrier, one would assume they'd have been arrested for trespassing. But the sheriff's department announced just one arrest. There were plenty of injuries, however. According to sources, 12 were either critically wounded or sustained head injuries and rushed to the hospital. A total of 168 were treated for hypothermia and pepper spray exposure on site by volunteer medics. Others were examined for concussions or to see if they'd broken a bone after being hit with rubber bullets, which left some with palm-sized welts. Still others were hit with grenade shrapnel. One young woman had her forearm torn open by a grenade. Her wound became frostbitten in the cold, and she may lose her arm. All because of decisions made by law enforcement officials with seemingly no regard for the Constitution. It's a peaceful protest, Gilbert said. We don't use weapons or have them. They are the ones who have the weapons and are blasting people. Cates, who has reported from Iraq multiple times, called it, quote, a war zone. The pipeline is being built and operated by a North Dakota oil and gas logistics firm called Energy Transfer Partners in conjunction with Sunoco Logistics. Last September, Barack Obama asked the company to voluntarily halt construction on one section of the pipeline and ordered the Army Corps of Engineers to examine alternative routes. With Donald Trump headed to the White House, all that could change. According to financial disclosures made during his campaign, Trump has invested between 500000 and $1 million in energy transfer partners, who in turn donated $100,000 towards his campaign. 
Yet another reason why so many on both sides of the political aisle have called on Trump to divest and liquidate all of his holdings before he takes office. If the project does go forward, the Morton County Sheriff's Department and Energy Transfer Partners will have to deal with the thousands who will continue to gather at Standing Rock. On Monday, a group of them locked arms and blocked the road in front of the sheriff's headquarters in Mandan, North Dakota. Sixteen were arrested. The call went out for support, Gilbert said, and it was for everybody. We got people from all over the world at this camp. Gilbert is from the next reservation south. It took him less than three hours to drive here with his 77-year-old mother, and they have no plans to leave, which, given the stakes, means he's likely to see more nights like November 20. That's a chance he's driven to take. If this thing leaks and it goes into the water, it comes right through us, he said. We plan on staying here through the duration, whatever it takes. And that piece was from org, and was by Adam Skolnick. And it's yet another chapter in our history where we take everything from the indigenous people of the country and then we take more. And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter on my new Twitter handle, BernieUS2020. If you want to support this podcast going forward, you can go to patreon.com slash unrelated things, and you can set up a pledge there. And as we head out tonight, we'll hear Indian Wars by Bruce Coburn, which you can find on the album Nothing But a Burning Light. And it has, this song has the chorus. You thought it was over, but it's just like before. Will there never be an end to the Indian Wars? Thanks for listening. Will there never be an end?
It's not breech-loading rifles And wholesale slaughter It's kickbacks and thugs And diverted water Treaties get signed And the papers change hands Oh, but they might as well draft These agreements in sand Noble savage On the cinema screen An Indian's good When he cannot be seen And the so-called white So-called race Digs for itself of disgrace You thought it was over But it's just like before 